0: The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlawry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket presales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you.
1: Wait, we haven't started yet. No, we have actually we have started, but come on. Look who just came in. Oh, you can't see us! Oh uh, no, I can't <laughs> see your wonderful face. Now it is, is it LaWoon. Is that that's it? That's it. Hey. That is LaWan, everybody. I want you to know, if you don't know already, this is my lovely wife, LaWan, and she's a big fan of brother Cornel West and is happy to be able to greet him here at the beginning of our conversation.
0: Well, I'm a fan of both of y'all and loving y'all, and I'm giving you a hug so big that it embraces both of (laughs)
1: y'all. Well, we appreciate it. We appreciate it. See you later. Okay. Take care. All right. All right, we're on the way to the Glenn Show. This is the Glenn Show, uh, Substack.com, YouTube. I'm sponsored by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, where you might not be surprised to learn, Cornell, that they're not exactly jumping for joy that you're running for president. I'm with Cornell. West. <laughs> Cornell West, the iconic uh, social critic, public intellectual, philosopher, theologian. He's professor at the Union Theological Seminary. He's taught at Harvard and Princeton and is known throughout the world for his books, for his activism, uh, for his testimony, his witnesses, prophetic witness. He will tell you that himself. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm just very glad to be sharing the uh, microphone with uh, with Brother uh, Cornell West. So welcome to the Glenn Show, Cornell.
0: Brother, you know I'm always blessed to be in conversation with you. We've been in conversation now decade after decade. I recall you writing a 10-page single-space response to an essay I did in 1984, five hours in New Haven. And then as now, I was always in by the power of your intellect and your brilliance and your challenge and your courage. And though we have deep disagreements here and deep agreements there, that we are two brothers, you from the south side of Chicago and me from the chocolate side of Sacramento.
1: Brother. Do you remember, I think it was Owen Fiss who invited me to the Yale Legal Theory Workshop in like 1985 and you and if I'm not mistaken, Adolph Reed were in the audience. When I held forth in my Reagan esque, <laughs> 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 our dear friend, the late Martin Kilson, the oh, late I great Martin Kilson, he was you. calling me a, a what he call me, a pathetic black mascot of the right. Uh, I, Lord only knows what Adolf was saying uh, after a couple of drinks. I don't know.
0: <laughs> do
1: you remember that? Oh, I do. Absolutely.
0: I want that was like 1985. That was 1985. Five. Legal theory workshop, man, with Anthony Krongman and the. Guido, Ding Guido, we had some great times in those days, man. Guido Calabrese, yeah. Definitely. But you you but you held your own though, brother. You really did. You held your own. And it was uh I mean, we we were coming at you in a lot of different ways, but you held your own. For me it was just a beautiful thing. I
1: think that kind of uh serious Socratic dialogue is, is, is necessary. Let's have it then, Cornell. Let's have it. You're running for president. Uh, I'm trying to get my mind around that. I know you're, you're now the second friend of mine who has run for president. Uh, I have to mention Larry Kotlikoff because he was best man at my wedding. He was chairman of the economics department at BU when I went over there in 1991. And we're dear, dear close friends. And he ran in 2016 a quick sided campaign thinking that being a smart economist, which he is, was good enough to lead the country. And I told him, I told him being a smart economist is a good thing, but it's not exactly good enough to lead the country. That's all you got, bro. And I got to ask you this question. You are a brilliant and profound social thinker. You are an intellectual and a man of ideas. You are a a prophetic witness on behalf of ideals that you embrace. But what, what do you think makes you fit to run the country? Well, I just think now
0: that uh, we're at such a low point, we're at such a nadir, that when I looked around and tried to find certain voices that I thought were fundamentally committed to truth and justice, and especially focused on poor and working people, uh, that I might be able to be of service, both to the love community as well as to the, uh, my fellow citizens as you can imagine, you know, I, I, I've said before, you'd find me in a crack house before you find me in the White House. You know, I've said this many, many occasions because the White House has been tied to so much corruption and war crimes abroad, be it Vietnam or Iraq or other places. Uh, but I do feel a certain calling to allow the legacy that has shaped me of Martin King and Rabbi Heschel and Dorothy Day and with Zaid. And he goes on, Grace Lee and. Most of others, to allow that prophetic legacy to spill over, my brother, to spill over into electoral politics. Because I'm thoroughly convinced that there is the best of America, and I want to reintroduce America to the best of itself. And the best of itself is people of integrity, honesty, courage, who are fundamentally committed to the least of these poor and working people. And we'll see. You know, I'm not naive about this, nor am I, uh, Pessimistic about this. When you're bearing witness, there's a joy in the struggling for justice.
1: There's a joy. Yeah, you you, you froze up on me. Uh, I hope you haven't oh. been sitting. Uh, but I, but we got you. We got Did you it on your side. Up? So no, no. Let, let's continue. Let, let's 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 keep going. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. It wasn't your fault. You uh, be- it's a it's. Oh, okay. Uh, I I think we're going to be okay. I think we need to just keep going. Um. You, you were just making a statement explaining uh, what the motivations were for you to try to uh, give voice to a, a certain kind of uh, moral witness in uh, running, right. for, what, running for president. Uh, but, okay, so the but is, it's the government of the United States of America. It's a massive, it's a massive, massive thing. Uh, and you can't get anything done by yourself. You say you'd prefer to be in a crack house than in the White House, but I mean, the White House is not actually running the show—not on—not on, on its own. It, it's providing some direction, but it, it's not. It's at the pinnacle of a, a massive uh, bureaucratic structure. There, there are all kinds that's of political forces that are at play. I mean, you got the other party, you got the Congress, you got the courts, you got the, et cetera, and uh, I. You know, again, with respect, with, with great respect, is it, a, is it not a quixotic uh, enterprise and, you know, one where it's full of symbolism, but where it doesn't actually touch the ground? How, how are things going to be made better in virtue of this candidacy? You're not going to win, excuse me, with respect.
0: You never know. You never know, brother. It's hard okay. to say, you know, Biden's getting right. right. know Trump might drop. Mediocre folk on the Republican side. The Democrats have very little. You never know how God works and how history proceeds. But you're right. The chances don't look good. Again, I'm not naive about this thing. But you have to. You have to keep this in mind. That uh, first, I see you have a certain prejudice towards Cervantes' great Don Quixote. I, I, a I prejudice toward Don what? To I'm sorry.
1: Would you repeat me? that?
0: A, a, a prejudice oh, against the great Cervantes character, Don Quixote. <laughs> okay, okay. To, to use that quick as if it's a pejorative thing. You notice in that novel, uh, Quixote actually stands for a certain kind of heroicism given a, a an empire that's in deep decline. I mean, it's, it's tied to the, sh- the chivalry and so forth, but he actually has a certain integrity and a certain source of appeal. Now, in a utilitarian world, the quixotic is pejorative because it's only about consequences, it's only about immediate results. You know what I mean? Whereas you know and I know that you know, we come from a tradition where the invisible and the immeasurable, the spiritual and the moral sometimes have as much effect as the utilitarian and the instrumental. And so it is in Cervantes' novel as well. And so I run for the presidency trying to ensure first that there is a public debate and public conversation that focuses on those you spent so much time on in the last 20 years or so. Those in mass incarceration, those you spent time on in your whole intellectual life those in the hood and the ghettos and so forth. And then how that's connected to, you know, the military industrial complex and the imperial presence of 800 military bases around the world and U.S. troops in over 150 countries, how that's connected to not having enough resources to deal with the elimination of poverty and homelessness, to deal with decent housing, to deal with quality schools, to deal with healthcare for all, and then to deal with those personal and spiritual issues you've always been concerned about, often associated with personal responsibility, which is stronger families, stronger civic institutions, so people can straighten their backs up and try to be persons of character. So that for me, in that sense, it's a, uh, it's a joy to be in it and it's a, it's a pain to be in it because it's a
1: mess. <laughs> you are right about that. But, but we shall see. We shall see. Let me ask you directly then, I mean, you are talking about some real stuff here. What's the connection between American empire, quote unquote, American militarism, and uh, the moral and spiritual crisis of the inner cities of the country and the uh, behavioral problems and the the loss of of, uh, kind of the thread, of the spiritual thread of dignity and so on that that, that, uh, you've also written about. What's the connection between those things? Or, you know, I'll just leave it at that. How do you see them as connected? Yeah, yeah. no,
0: no it, it's a very important question. I mean, a lot of social scientists would talk about it in terms of more money for guns and not enough money for butter, more money for military spending, not enough money for uh, programs that would enhance supply to the poor. We saw it in the depth ceiling. Agreement, For example, you still expand the military and you have to provide certain work requirements to gain access to government's resources. But for me, it's a much deeper issue. It's what Brother Martin meant when he said the bombs that drop in Vietnam fall in ghettos, barrios, reservations, poor white communities. And that's not simply a monetary issue. It's not simply financial. It has to do with a militarism abroad that strikes back. And you end up with militarizing within your own country. Look at the Cop City debate going on right now in, in Atlanta 11 to 4, mainly black folk, Democrats, black Democratic mayor calling for more militarization. We saw the militarization of the police intensify under Barack Obama and under uh, Eric Holder. The militarizing sensibilities that are more and more manifest with the gun violence. Violence is the first thing to go to anytime you're feeling down as a first resort to conflict. You militarize abroad, you think you can invade Iraq and kill half a million people, not say a mumbling word about an Iraqi life when an Iraqi life has exactly the same value as an American life. You think you can go to war in, Vietnam, in, in Afghanistan for 20 years, spend trillions of dollars, and think that doesn't have some impact on the spirit and soul of your nation? And we can go on and on in that regard. The invasions and occupations of so many other places. It could be in Panama, Grenada, and so forth and so forth forth and so on. So there is a, a spiritual connection between being an empire where, what is it, military expenditure of the United States is more than the next 10 countries combined. You say, well, my God. We've got a connection between domestic and foreign policy at a moral and spiritual level that strikes back at us. So we be, when we begin to think more and more, it really is just about military might. We're right back to Thrasymachus in Plato's Republic, where Socrates has a respond to Thrasymachus, what? Might does not make right. Power does not dictate morality." And if all we have is military power, if all we have is might, then we're just not just another empire. It's been what, about 70? I think Nial uh, Ferguson tells us it's been about 70 empires going back to Africa. And we're the 68th, and we know all empires come and go. They come and go. Why? Because of military overreach, corruption of elites, citizens feeling helpless and powerless, turning on each other scapegoating the most vulnerable rather than confronting the most powerful. Here comes the legacy of Martin Luther King, Fannie Lou Hamer. Here comes Ella Baker saying what? We are as American as those American bombs, just like Louis Armstrong and Aretha Franklin and Curtis Mayfield are as American as those American bombs. America, you need to be reintroduced to the best of yourself. That's what this candidacy is about. One moment like a wave, a little small wave in an ocean. It goes all the way back to Harriet Tubman. It goes all the way back to Frederick Douglass. It goes all the way back to the Lowry family on the south side of Chicago. We ain't got to the church life yet.
1: All right, all right, all right. Let me me interrupt. That was a soliloquy and a half. Uh. And it, it it shows your it shows your genius at work your oratorical genius and the depth of your spiritual commitment and your vision, uh, and I'm just wondering what makes me. Uh, let's suppose I'm, uh, you know, a white guy running a small company in the middle of Ohio, Indiana, Nebraska, somewhere. Yes, I vote Republican, but I don't necessarily feel good about it. Uh, I love my country, whatever I mean by that. I love my God. Uh, I'm a straight arrow, and and I'm listening uh, to your prophetic witness, and what I see is a radical. I, I see, I'm sorry, a Marxist. That's what they're going to say. Uh, I see a guy who shows up, ambulance chaser, like, excuse me, with respect, but that's what they're going to say at every demonstration with a protest sign, uh, and who's going to spout this rhetoric. What I, what I know, I, w- I just want you to respond to this. What I know is that the world is a dangerous place. That there are forces at work other than American Empire that necessarily don't mean my grandchildren any good. Uh, th- that hard calls have to be made when they fly planes into uh, office towers. Things have to be done in response to that. Of course, there are questions about what's wise, but to adopt a posture with an armchair posture—again, this is the voice of this guy—I want you to respond to it of uh, castigating the American project toot court uh, because quote, we have made mistakes, close quote. When I know, I know that uh, the defeat of the Nazis in the Second World War was the right side winning. I know that the retirement of the arsenal of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics actually advanced human freedom in the uh, largest sweep of history, notwithstanding the fact that the United States has done things to set human freedom back. Right. But please talk to me. Don't, don't talk at me. T- tell me why it is that I should be persuaded by this radical vision that you're giving such, uh, eloquent voice
0: to. So at first I would start with the precious white brother that you noted. Uh, I would say that there's the best in us and there's the worst in us. I would say that I'm fundamentally concerned about his situation and predicament. And I would say I want to learn and listen. This is, I have something to say to him. He has something to say to me. I would say he is who he who he is because somebody loved him. I am who I am because somebody loved me. And therefore I'm concerned about his access to a job with a living wage. I'm access to, access to, to safe neighborhood. I'm access to health care, access to quality education for him and his children. And that we have much in common because we're part of a project of living in the United States. And the United States has its Worse, which is its imperial presence abroad, let alone all of the various forms of domination. And America has its best. Those who resisted it and those who preserved their dignity and resilience in the face of it. So I would put myself on a human level. That's why I'm going to spend some good time going into Trump country, brother. I'm, I would I approach each person not as a stereotype, uh, not as some kind of construct, but as a very precious human being who has their own lens through which they view the world, and I have my lens through which I view the world, and we attempt to come together and see where we overlap. I mean, you're right, it is a dangerous place. The world's a dangerous place. Always has been, always will be. You know, the hounds of hell are always, uh, dominating the species of, of of hatred and fear and envy and resentment. But thank God we've got moments of interruption. That's what love is all about. That's what justice is all about. And you know how fragile any democratic experiment is. And the question becomes, how do we try to preserve the best of it? And I think I can find some common ground with that white brother, even if we ended first talking about sports and music a little bit, or maybe talked about his mama and I tell him about mine so we can make a genuine connection, but then the political discussion would begin. But, I, uh, but if, they, if they came in and said, well, I'm a Marxist and I'm a radical, well, no, first I'm a mama's child and daddy's kid just like you. Then they said, oh, I hear you're a Christian. You're a Christian. You couldn't be a Marxist. Well, I'm the kind of Christian that believes that a critique of capitalism is very important, but Marx is wrong on a lot of things. And I I believe the Marxist critique of Christianity needs to be listened to because we Christians have done some vicious things in the world, especially against Jews, against Muslims, against Turks, against gays and lesbians and women. And the Klan has done some vicious things in the name of Christianity against my black folk themselves. So I think there's a way in which I can make that connection, my brother.
1: Okay. Does that
0: make sense to you? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it it does make sense, uh, in part because your humanity comes across and the sincerity of your person-to-person connection comes across, and I don't think anybody can listen to you uh, and read you and and not see that there's someone, a loving, uh, generous, open-minded, sincere uh, person on the other side of the conversation. A sincere person, I'm going to have to just tell you, I was trained in economics at MIT in the 1970s. I was influenced by the Reagan revolution and all of that. I have gone left and I have gone right. But at the end of the day, I come out very friendly to capitalism. I had a debate with, you may know him, Richard Wolf. You know Richard Wolff, the economist? Oh, I know Brother Rick Wolf. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you have a treat in store, Cornell, if I may just say this. My lovely wife, whom we met at the beginning of this conversation, moderated. Richard Wolf and I stood toe to toe for an hour. Oh, 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 oh. resolved, capitalism is superior to socialism as a way of organizing the economy. I had the affirmative, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we went back and forth, and we went back and forth, and I basically said, and I'm going to just say this to you, and I, uh, invite your, and I invite your reaction. I say we look at the history of the world. Uh, in the last couple of hundred years. And we ask, how did we become so rich and prosperous? How did we come to live so long? Why, why is modern dentistry and, and medicine what it is? How, how, how did we increase the caloric intake of billions of people in the, in the course of human development from uh, near starvation to something where they prosper? Where did our great cities come from? How How is it that the scientific knowledge has been created, uh, et cetera? And we ask the role that capitalism played in that, warts and all, I would say it's a plus. I'd say if you look at the history of the 20th century and you ask where socialism has been imported into developing world and whatnot, uh, the track record is very spotty. Uh, I'd say as soon as the Eastern European countries got a chance to make choices about how they were going to organize their economic activity, they moved in the direction of uh, of a uh, free market and uh, open uh, exchange and uh, profit-seeking activity and private enterprise and private property and 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 so on and so forth and and I just say I think the jury is in, not that we shouldn't have uh, housing, healthcare, right. uh, food for hungry right. people, support for needy families. Not not that, but that the basic bedrock principles of social and economic organization that are grounded in. Uh, ideas about the free market is is uh, just the superior has been shown historically to be a superior way of organizing our our, our activity. So you know uh, that's where I would kind of come out. Well, and, I, I and, hear
0: what you're saying, though. You know, it it, yeah. it does remind me of the debate that my dear brother Robert Robert George, my dear brother Robbie, we have when we teach uh, Hayek's classic Road to Serfdom in our class. Uh, because he makes very, very strong arguments, you do, for the market and for capitalism and so forth. And and I I argue that there's more than one road to serfdom. See that uh, certainly highly centralized forms of, of of bureaucracies in the economy make it difficult to generate levels of technological innovation and unpredictable scientific breakthroughs so that Hayek and others are right when it comes to highly centralized governmental forms. But you know, and I know, when you look at capitalism in the last hundred years or so, you're primarily talking about monopolies and oligopolies. A lot of the breakthroughs that you're talking about have to do with highly centralized forms of power and authority in the economy. And they can lead to forms of serfdom too, so that free market is not a question of entrepreneurial activity in the middle ranges, but we're talking about huge global conglomerates that have the same authoritarian potential that the states did when Hayek was talking. And Brother Robbie said, "Yes, I'm, I'm with you there, Brother West." And I would think you would be highly suspicious of deeply centralized forms in the economy that make it different difficult for free markets to ever exist because they're no longer free. They've all, always already been dominated by these oligopolies. And I think you would also agree that if it leads toward the destruction of the planet because the corporate greed tied to fossil fuel a, a, a conglomerates don't make it possible for us to have climate change policy, don't make it possible for us to somehow arrest the development that's leading toward the ecological collapse. Or, or, another way of looking at it is, if it leads toward more Hiroshima's, more Nagasaki's, possibilities of nuclear holocaust, which are tied to scientific innovation and breakthrough as well, then we've got to be honest about both sides of this debate. And that's why, for me, I'm suspicious of both centralized forms across the board. I've always been a decentralizing kind of person when it comes to uh, centralized power, be it in the economy, be it in the state. But I should stop there and and tell me what you think.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about climate for a minute. Um, I had Steve Coonan, who's a physicist at NYU, who's a climate skeptic, I guess you can call him that. He's a very smart guy, served in the Obama administration uh, in the energy department at a high level, Uh, studied with uh, some of the great physicists uh, at Caltech and whatnot. He's a serious guy. He's written a book, I guess, uh, Unsettled, the title of the book, and then it has a subtitle, and basically his argument is the science is not settled on climate, that the models are sketchy, that uh, there are a lot of factors that are hard to quantify, and that, and I hope not to do a disservice to his position, the apocalyptic vision that if we don't turn back, if we don't turn back, if we don't turn back, human, humanity be doomed is not to be trusted. It's not a scientific. It's almost a spiritual claim, not a scientific claim. He also emphasizes that, you know, we sit here. Um, I'm not sure where you are right now. Maybe. Uh, are you on the West Coast?
0: Yeah. At L.A. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: You're in L.A. I'm in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, in the shadow of Boston. Massachusetts. We're rich. We're fat. We're powerful. We get on airplanes and fly. Where we want to turn the air conditioner on and off anytime. Get in our M- M- uh, BMW. I drive a BMW. I don't know what you drive. I drive rent a rental car.
0: Rental car. Rental car, brother. You go right in. Go
1: right You know, and, and, and yeah. if you go to India where they got, you know, uh, 1.8 uh, billion people or whatever the number is, you go to China where they got 1.5 billion people, you go to a lot of places in uh, Southeast Asia, in Africa, et cetera, even in Southeast Europe, where development is not at the level that we have enjoyed. And we ask, how are they going to get there? Get there being to a nature and a quality of life comparable to what we take for granted uh, in uh, Northern Europe and, and in the North America and whatnot. Uh, it's going to be through fossil fuels. There's not any other path for them. This is Kunin. I'm summarizing. I'm mm. trying to make this point. I'm, the point I'm trying to make, we were talking about capitalism. Right. And socialism is that when state power gets deployed on behalf of the allocation of economic resources in the service of ideology, uh, the consequences can be really quite dire. And I want to put this question to you directly. I asked my friend Ernesto Cortez, the community organizer, a great man, a great man, and and Saul Alinsky, Acolyte, Industrial Areas Foundation, Texas, California, great, great man. And I said to him, I hope he won't get mad at me for telling this. I said, how is somebody who's on behalf of the working class? I'm talking about the guys that dig holes within women with their bare hands, who work on gotcha. pipelines, who work in trucking, who 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 work, you know, who who are working class people who depend upon a vital economy to keep them going? You shut down fossil fuels, uh, how's that guy gonna get uh a bread on the table or gal? How how, how are they gonna uh uh achieve their uh, their life's dreams. Uh, so isn't there something in conflict, even within the left? I mean, I'm I'm trying to understand this climate uh, enthusiasm because it seems to cut against a working class ethos. It, it, it seems to undercut the blue collar uh, to a great degree. People talk about solar and wind and they talk easily, breezily. They talk about, well, people get reallocated to other jobs and so forth and so on. But on the ground in Akron, Ohio, and on the ground in Galveston, Texas, and so forth and so on. There's, there's some real conflicts here. So that was a long-winded way of me saying, I'm not sure all of the different elements on your menu of reform are coherently uh, aligned with one another. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, I do take that. But you see where I was
0: going at you in terms of when you prematurely I think, decide that the trajectory of capitalist development because of all of the breakthroughs that you've talked about, innovation, medicine, so well, of course I grant you that. I wish it was more readily available to the masses, but certainly it was discovered under under the aegis of capital. I agree with that. I would never deny the scientific innovation and the technological innovation that has been part and parcel of the logic, the market logic of capitalism. The problem is, is that one, you've got to, The issue of distribution. I know you studied with dear Rob, What's Robert? uh, Solo. Yeah, Robert Solo was my advisor. Solo, I mean, he's a towering figure. You talked about distribution in your dissertation. How do you know that? How do you know that?
1: Oh, brother,
0: I've been reading you for decades, man. Oh, my bad. Thank (laughs) you (laughs) for decades, brother. But I mean, but then, but but it's the distribution of it. Three individuals have wealth equivalent to 160 million, one half the U.S. population. 1% 1% of the population has wealth fulfillment to 90% of fellow citizens. That's worse than under the monarchs and the suzerains in, in, in pre-modern times. You see, so that, yes, that innovation is important. But even when we go to our working brothers and sisters, who we love so dearly, seriously, short-term versus long-term, if we can show that ecological catastrophe is real and fossil fuel is one factor among others, are you willing to still opt for jobs tied to that, knowing in the long term your, grandparent, your grandkids will have no planet at all? Or if they do, it's going to be so chaotic with struggles of water in the face of overwhelming pollution and so forth and so on. You go to the working brothers and sister, we go to the barbershop and the beauty salon and say, look, y'all, we're going to get Socratic up in here. We're going to tell you the relation between now and the future and I know you are as rational in your capacity if you cultivate it as people at MIT and Harvard. We know we can, prevent, we can present evidence to you. We know you have deep concerns about your great grandkids and your grandkids and not simply about your job right now at this moment. The problem with profit maximizing and capitalism is in the last 50 years, it's obsessed with short term, brother. That's what private equity is about. That's what hedge fund is all about. We want the money now. What about the long-term consequences? No. I mean, that, Bentham turns over in his grave as the founder of utilitarianism. He had a temporal dimension to utilitarianism. It wasn't just right now, immediate pleasure. Okay, I'm just going And John Stuart Mill refined it. These days with the market, it's right now, I want my money. It's like CEO salary. That's, that's part of it. They get that money right. Well, what about the long term?
1: Okay, we lost Cornell, but he'll be back. You, had, you made the point that uh, working people could be persuaded that uh, the climate issue was a, a serious issue. And if so, they might be willing to give up something on the economic front. Right. And you say the, the problem with capitalism and profit-seeking is that it's a short or, short-term oriented focus. and That's right. And uh, they, they don't take these uh, things uh, properly into account. That's exactly uh, right. And it's another
0: way of uh, saying that the moral and spiritual dimension of character formation, of virtues, of concerns, about sympathy for others and empathy for others are always afterthoughts, if at all, in the capitalist calculation. And that is a devastating indictment, even given the scientific innovation that, that you associated with, and rightly so, I do agree with you on that front.
1: What does Robbie say when you uh, confront he and Friedrich von Hayek and Milton Friedman's Capitalism of Friedman yeah. and all that with the moral deficits of the profit-oriented uh, model of economics.
0: Yeah, no, our dear brother Robbie brings in that very rich Catholic social teachings tradition and says, I am as committed to virtue formation. I am as committed to soul craft. I am as much committed to the the, the virtues as I am market. And so you get this fascinating uh a double commitment. And I think in many ways, you know, you would agree because you are as moral and decent and concerned about human suffering as anybody else. And you would admit that the market logic of capitalism, it can be used in such a way that it hits poverty head on, but the logic in and of itself requires some kind of added moral and spiritual dimension for us to be able to create any kind of wholesale society. You'd agree with
1: that though, right? Of course I agree with that. The profiteering and the consumer of of mania and whatnot can be soul killing. It it can undermine the very foundation of of a decent and dignified life. And and we owe ourselves to keep the eye on the spiritual ball as well as on the material ball. I, I would say those kind of things. And I would say, actually, since we are talking in this vein, That uh, some of the problems of the low income uh, urban uh, African American community are spiritual problems, not just problems of a deficit of of, uh, economic resources. No doubt
0: about that. No doubt about that. And
1: unless we find a way of reaching people at that level, at a level of what's the meaning of life, what is a dignified life, what do I owe to my children, to my ancestors, to myself, who and whose am I? Uh, If we just throw money at them, we're not necessarily going to solve that problem either. That's exact. But, But see, part of the richness of the legacy of Martin King
0: was that he understood that the revolution he was calling for, and every revolution in the end has to do with some substantive sharing of resources, sharing of duties, sharing of wealth, sharing of dignity, but there's always a spiritual and a moral dimension that has to be addressed independent simply of the political and economic one. And that's why I've always called for a spiritual renaissance, a moral reawakening, and a radical redistribution of wealth downward that takes the form of ensuring that rights and liberties are protected. I'm very much a libertarian, as you. The kind of majoritarian institutions that protect rights and liberties are requisite for any decent society. But I'm going tooth and nail at these monopolies and oligopolies, and I'm going tooth and nail at the military-industrial complex with its militarism abroad.
1: Okay, let's talk politics a little bit. How are you going to get on the ballot?
0: Well, as you know, I'm on the Green Party now, so we already got nearly 20 and we can get another 21 or so as I undergo that Green Party nomination. And uh, the Green Party usually has a candidate who is on about 47 states, 48 states. And so do you
1: have to contend for the Green Party nomination.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a process. Very much so. But I'm going to be a part of that nominating process.
1: I know you've heard the criticism third party candidacy it just draws support away from uh, the milk toast democrats that you use. <laughs> <laughs> But after all even a milk toast democrat is better than you know the other alternatives say these critics and uh, they remember Ralph Nader 2000 and all of that and uh, they they want to know what's your plan you know what's your what's your long term plan in terms of uh, the weighty election and, and the role that you might play in it. If, even if you're successful in securing the Green right. Party nomination, and even if you attract a non-trivial amount of support, the chances that you would prevail in the electoral process are slim, but the consequences of your effort could be very, very significant. How do you answer that?
0: Well, one is that, see, I just refuse to presuppose the given as the inevitable and the necessary that if you think that American politics will forever be the, the the oscillation between Republicans and Democrats, then any attempt to break out is viewed as being a spoiler. Now, I think that's an unfortunate term that when you actually look at Al Gore, you know, he didn't even carry his own congressional district of Tennessee. He didn't carry Arkansas. And he could have actually fought When it went to the Supreme Court, he refused to fight. You might remember that when Jesse Jackson Jr. and the caucus tried to convince him to to follow through. The idea of putting that on somebody who who received such few uh, votes relative to the two parties, to me, is simply a a rationalization. They say the same thing about Sister Jill Stein. She got 1% of the votes, but she received full responsibility for why Hillary Clinton lost. No, Hillary lost. She was a mediocre candidate. She didn't go to West Virginia. She called ordinary Americans deplorables and irredeemables, and therefore she did not win. It wasn't because of Jill Stein. You see what I mean? But I, I, I don't like that kind of uh, framework. Uh, I do think there has to be some very practical uh, uh, reflections and practical judgments, not just Machiavellian ones, uh, that have to do with numbers, but also practical ones in terms of the impact of various administrations on, on people. And I, I, to me, that is a factor, but it's not the sole factor. It's not the sole factor. Not at all. And so I, um, you know, you just have to be ready to get hit with all kinds of bows and arrows, my brother. Some of them are strong and you learn from them. And some of them are just empty and false and pseudo because people are trying to foreclose any broader discussion i'm convinced the two-party system the two parties in place do not speak to the basic needs of poor and working people now if that's the case and i'm committed to poor and working people i got to follow my call
1: i respect that uh (sighs) I gather that uh, you're not expecting an endorsement from former President Barack Obama as you seek to become the second African American (laughs) elected to that high (laughs) office.
0: Did did you hear what he said yesterday, though? God bless. About Tim Scott. Oh Lord, Tim Scott better have a plan to hit transgenerational poverty and deal with racial inequality. He got to walk the walk and talk the talk. What a self-criticism! What a self-indictment! That Smiley, and I had a poverty tour twice trying to get him to use the word poverty, and we were trashed by the White House folk. We also tried to raise issues of mass incarceration, raise the issues of the poor in in, in barrios and reservations, pushed aside, viewed as traitors, and now he's going to say exactly the same thing about Brother Tim Scott. Come on, Brother Barack, we were born at night, but not last night, man. <laughs> Jeez,
1: so you credit then indirectly in your criticism of the president's most recent remarks, the sincerity of Tim Scott in representing himself as somebody who seeks the betterment not only of the country, but also of black people in particular and, and uh, who genuinely believes that his, you know, uh, more or less friendly to free market and self-reliance and, and, you know, pulling up your bootstraps and all of that, uh, is, is, uh, if not always correct, at least, uh, honest.
0: Oh, no doubt about that. I mean, brother, Tim Scott is like members of Shiloh Baptist church where I grew up, man, that, yeah. that, that, that he, he wants to do the right thing. He's a bona fide conservative black brother. And and so he looks at the lens in that way. He's got to talk about opportunity zones. Opportunity zones have their role. They have their place. Now, when I say role and have their place, there's a role for small businesses. There's a role for entrepreneurial activity, even in my much more so-called leftist project. You know, we're not we're talking about eliminating businesses and allowing business opportunities for folk. Same would be true in terms of uh, providing resources for uh, civic institutions that need to be sustained. So that my critique of of Tim Scott in some ways is the same as my critique of Clarence Thomas, that both of them aesthetically are beautiful black brothers. They look like cousins of mine. I think they're wrong about 95% of the time, but I do think they're sincere.
1: Yeah, I I will acknowledge here For the record, uh, full disclosure that uh, I have recently defended Justice Thomas uh, in uh, remarks that I've made publicly, uh, not uh, in the context of these uh, allegations of his inappropriate acceptance of gifts and so on, which I think, you know, is an argument and certainly is not a good look. Uh, though I don't believe that the justice is corrupt. I'll just say this. for I'm not asking you to con- to endorse this uh, point of view. But my main point was this is an African-American whose life and, and whose uh, career and whose work uh, on behalf of the country offered sincerely from his point of view, which he gets to have. And being black doesn't mean he can't have that view. That's right. Uh, deserves to be uh, respected uh, in that light. I mean, you don't have to agree with his jurisprudence to acknowledge that Uh, he is an authentic representative of the experience of our people. I speak of African-Americans in this country. And the vilification, the denigration, the character assassination, the you know, a talking head, I won't name him because I don't want to, you know, on CBS, uh, when Kavanaugh was being uh, contested, the nomination said, if Kavanaugh is confirmed, we'll end up with two sexual predators on the U.S. Supreme Court. Said that in, you know, uh, twenty. 18, 2019, whenever that Kavanaugh thing was going on. And I thought, come on, you're going you're to relegate Clarence Thomas to the category of sexual predator because of the dispute with Anita Hill 30 years ago? You're going to do this to this fine American, this fine African American uh, who's conservative? And yes, you can argue with his conservatism, but don't do that to don't do, you know. So anyway, thank you for yes. letting me say that. No, no, no. no. no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to get that out. I, I mean, you, brother, Clarence, has
0: always been my political foe and my ideological enemy. There's no doubt about that, but I can still stay in contact with his humanity. I can be Mm -hmm. concerned about his loved ones and family, and we clash, and people say, oh, Brother West, he just pushed through legislation. That's taking back the rights of women. I say, I know, that's why I hit the streets. That's why I defend reproductive rights and so forth and so on. But he is deeply a sincere Right-wing brother, there's just no doubt about that, and uh, and that's part of the clash, and that's something we've always had that in the history of not just Black America within the country as a whole, but within the Black community, we've always had conservative folk. They've been part of the community, and they're part of the uh, all the Black networks, and and we 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 go at it ideologically and
1: politically, no doubt. Okay, let me ask you this. Let me let me ask you this. You you mentioned the possibility of nuclear war. Yeah. Uh, I'm watching what's going on in the conflict in Europe, Ukraine, Russia, and NATO, and the United States. And I'm just concerned. I'm I'm concerned that we're on a slippery slope to something that so is, is not such a great thing. Yeah, and I wonder how you parse it. Are you following the ins and outs of all of the, it's complicated uh, machinations of, Uh, post-Soviet history in uh, Eastern Europe and uh, the nature of this conflict, Ukraine, uh, do you agree that Putin has ambitions that extend beyond uh, the Donbass region and that uh, could conceivably end up with him uh, aggressing against uh, uh, the uh, Baltic states or uh, Poland or whatever, and then that we have to make a Stands here, are you comfortable with the billions of dollars that uh, we are providing to fuel this conflict? And are you uh, happy about the openness of the debate and discussion that we m- might hope to have here in this country uh, about this conflict? And I'll stop talking because you're hey. the one who's being interviewed, but de- no, I'm inviting you no. to reflect
0: on that. I hear you. I hear you. No, indeed, indeed. You know, you know, part of the problem here is, is that we need what you know, that we need a broad-ranging, robust, truth-seeking conversation about both the background and context as well as the present moment. You know and I know that Gorbachev, and Gorbachev is a towering figure in the 20th century, uh, that he was promised that NATO would not move one inch. Now, he agrees even with the right-wing xenophobic uh, elites In the Russian Empire. That was a consensus among the Russian elites that the collapse of the Soviet Empire would would mean that NATO would not move one inch. Why? Because NATO has been an instrument of U.S. global power. There's no doubt about that. Now, when you look at the present moment and you move forward a few decades, what do you see? Fourteen former Soviet countries, part of NATO, right on the border of the wounded Russian empire with its shrinking economy and its insecure elites. Now, United States is an empire, too, Do we talk. If there were missiles in Mexico, missiles in California, Russian missiles, the United States would blow it in the smithereens the same day because empires behave that way. Now, if I say that on television, they say, Brother West, you're anti-American. No, I'm not. Not at all. I'm trying to tell the truth about how empires behave. And therefore, the extension and expansion of NATO was a kind of provocation. It's not the only factor that explains, but it was a kind of provocation. And the juxtaposition between the U.S. empire, which is the mightiest empire in the history of the world, And the wounded Russian Empire, there's no equivalency there, but I keep track of the imperial ends and aims of both. And I'm in deep solidarity with the suffering of my precious Ukrainian brothers and sisters who are caught in the middle of this proxy war between the US Empire and the Russian. And as it escalates, it is a road to nuclear. It, uh, exchange in Holocaust, and I am like you, very, very much concerned. But we don't have enough self-criticism in the U.S. press about the United States reneging on its promise.
1: Yeah, they're beginning to be some people talking about that. I've been, you know, looking You saw the Harvard
0: Magazine piece, and Brother Benjamin uh, Schwartz and the other who who tried to lay this out. It was a very courageous piece because, of course. When you say or do something like that, people think you're downplaying the plight of Ukrainians, or people think that somehow you are uh, just a talking head for Putin. You say, no, no, no. We keep track of a critique of both, and this is what's difficult. But same is true, you know, in the Middle East, right? You've seen, we've seen this over and over again. How do we convince folk that we're committed to Jewish humanity, Jewish security, and at the same time, we're committed to Palestinian dignity? and justice for the Palestinians. And you try to engage in a dialogue, and lo and behold, the name calling (laughs) comes up, and it's hard to keep track of the suffering. West Bank, Gaza, occupation, domination. Must be anti-Semitic. No, no, not at all, not at all. I'm trying to be consistent. I would say exactly the same thing. If there was a Jewish occupation and domination, if there was a, a Palestinian occupation and domination of precious Jewish brothers and sisters, I'd have the same moral stance, same spiritual stance, and being in solidarity with Jews. Both groups, Jews and Palestinians, often feel as if they're in the world all alone, abandoned. Nobody cares. That's like being in Mississippi, American apartheid, black folk catching hair, chaos. Who really cares. It's hard to find a whole lot of folks. You always had a slice of white folk, but small. But that sense of being abandoned, what does that do? It reinforces paranoia. It reinforces distrust. And part of our aim, I think, as human beings is to let folk know anytime you feel
1: abandoned, there are people who care. Cornell, do you think Palestinians should acknowledge the request from the Israelis that they recognize Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state? I don't think that
0: the vast majority can do that because it means then a denial of their own ancestors because they can't return. A Jewish brothers and sisters from, 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 from Peru or Argentina can return. So it would be a denial of of their ancestors' presence and the 750,000 who were pushed out. I think what, we, what, what needs to be asked of our precious Palestinian brothers and sisters, as they are freed from occupation and domination, is a fundamental commitment to Jewish security. See, there should never, ever be a massacre, a mass massacre of Jewish brothers and sisters, given the 2,000 years of the treatment of our brothers, Jewish brothers and sisters. Jewish security. Now, Jewish security is different than having a Jewish state. Now, if folks say, well, there'll never be Jewish security without a Jewish state. Correct. That's
1: Didn't what you? they say.
0: Ooh. Now, because I think there's two non-negotiables here. The two non-negotiables are simultaneously Jewish security, Palestinian dignity. You got to have both simultaneously. People say that's impossible. The only way we have Jewish security is a Jewish state, but the Jewish state is dominating and occupying Palestinians. So you never had the Palestinian identity. Well, we have Palestinian dignity, but if the Palestinian dignity leads toward pushing Jews into the sea, that is as wrong as the former. So what do we do? Well, we got to be creative. Maybe we come up with what what Belgium did and others. You have the bi-national federations with troops, mediating, and at the same time, both states being able to have the kind of apparatuses that they're able to walk with dignity and have their own policy and shape their own dignity. We have to get creative, but at least we have to be clear on what the non-negotiables are. And so the Jewish state, when I hear Brother Schumer say, Jewish state, no matter what, no, you can't have a state that kills 551 Palestinian babies in 50 days and nobody can raise a moral voice because it makes them look like they're anti-Semitic. No, in the same way, the other way, you get Palestinians killing innocent Israelis, Palestinians talking about pushing Jews into the sea. No, no, there's got to be some way of coming up with Pal- Palestinians free of occupation and domination and Jews feeling safe and
1: secure so they don't have to worry about another Holocaust. I'm not so sure of that. That is to say, I'm not so sure there such a way exists. I don't know. I'm not an expert on this question. I did uh, join a delegation led by Walter Russell Mead of uh, intellectuals and journalists that toured uh, three years ago or so in, on the West Bank uh, and in, uh, in Israel. What, what, proper. Yeah, what
0: did those conditions look like, my brother?
1: Well, I came away thinking. Uh, that the older the aging generation of Palestinian leaders I'm not an expert I want to make clear on that sure sure we're we're out of touch we talked to a sociologist a Palestinian sociologist in Ramallah who had done opinion surveys of the population and the under 35 Palestinian population man they don't believe in the two state solution at all they they are radicalized and they are uh, alienated from this aging PLO leadership uh, they look to Hamas as the cutting edge of the expression of their political aspiration and uh, they're sullen and, and, and they're, they are cornered, you know, and, and, uh, the, uh, idea of the two state solution, uh, this is again, impressionistic, I'm not an expert, seemed a very, very distant and theoretical idea in the, in the context of the situation I was seeing on the ground. I visited a Uh, A a refugee settlement uh, in Ramallah and so forth and talk with some of the people on the street. And uh, I, you know, and I also went to uh, Gush uh, Etzion, you know, uh, I I went to one of the uh, settlements built into a a hillside in um, so-called occupied or disputed territories. Those people are dug in. Well again. That's been the problem. You see, the two state solution had
0: some saliency, you know, 30 years ago with the expansion of the settlements now, 800,000 or so. All that land, for the most part, most of that land is taken. And so it pushes us into either a secular state or some creative federation. Because the, the, by federation, I mean, you still basically have one state, you just have different autonomous regions and so on. Because the two, the, the two the state solution, was missed. That opportunity's gone. It's gone. It's like, you know, trying to act like you're making your breakthrough with Motown. No, I'm sorry, but uh, you're a little late. You're a little late. The high moment of Motown is over. It's over.
1: So I see a kind of creeping, you know, with keep the status quo going, kind of annexation as the, as the historical direction that things are moving in. And, you know, I, I don't see an easy way out. I just... I just don't see it. I, I, I talk Isn't with that? moderate. I talk with yeah. moderate. These were not Likud. These were moderate yeah. Israeli politicians. And I asked them about Jewish voices for peace. They have complete contempt for Jewish voices for peace. Groveling, you know, begging people to, to like Jews and whatnot, unconcerned about the security of I them. Mean, you know, we're dealing, we got a tiger by the tail over here, or whatever the right metaphor is. And we are damn sure not going to be on the short end of it. We got the upper hand. We're going to damn sure not going to. You say so you want see, that's, that's,
0: that's, that's Jabotinsky, brother. You look, Albert Einstein versus Jakob Jabotinsky. Now, Einstein and Martin Buber said we better learn how to coexist in an egalitarian way. Jabotinsky said, no, we got to by the tail. We got to dominate. We got to subjugate. We got to even push back, kick them out. And right now, what happens in Israel, you got such a far, far right government now against Jewish women, now against Jewish gays. Now against Jewish, lesbians, Jewish trans, and against Jewish poor, so you're going to get an internal civil war within the state, and still haven't come to terms with the issue of Palestinian occupation and Palestinian second-class citizenship. So that this notion of we got to you got to gravel and grab it by the tail—that's precisely the myopic
1: orientation that comes back to haunt one. They, they can't afford to be wrong about that. They they they. they... Uh, I'm now trying to channel what I can imagine some of the people I spoke with would say. Sure. We really got one shot here. It, you know, it's easy for you to say. But if I'm wrong, if, if I lighten up and uh, the Hamas forces uh, do what they seem to be wanting to do, which is to push us into the sea, we're fighting for our lives and we don't have any place to go. So, you know, sorry, I, I wish that there was a pretty way to manage this, but whatever, I'm not letting go.
0: Yeah, but if it means then the massive massacre of Palestinians, then it's clear that there was no substantive commitment to never again. It was only never again for us as opposed to never again for anybody. And if that's the case, then you don't really have any moral and spiritual dimension. What you have is a tribalism that rightly is concerned about Jewish brothers and sisters. We must be committed to Jewish brothers and sisters. But you'll never get the security that you need and desire if you are occupying and dominating others. If if there's one law of history, it's that sooner or later you're going to reap what you sow when you're trying to dominate and and occupy. That's not how you go about gaining your
1: security. All right. Let me ask you about something else. But I know I know we can go, but I appreciate this time. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to take too much of your time, but I do want to ask you about the border. Uh, I want to ask you about what you would do to manage the fact that people are presenting themselves in large numbers, seeking a better life, seeking refuge uh, at our border, and that the maintenance of an orderly handling of that situation is a huge challenge to every administration, Absolutely, and that the I don't know if you agree with this—that the uh, interest of the United States of America, rightly understood, certainly includes uh, a acknowledgement of the humanitarian imperative of uh, providing sanctuary. Absolutely, but does not do so in an unlimited fashion uh, without regard to the consequences of that for our own citizens. And there has to be—I'm an economist—a trade-off. There has to be a balancing of the various competing interests. And I'm just wondering quite apart from the partisanship, you know, Greg Abbott wants to do this, and Ron DeSantis wants to do that, and uh, Gavin Newsom wants to do the other, and Bush did one thing, and uh, Trump did another thing, and et cetera. Quite apart from that, what what would be the principle that would guide your approach to, to this uh, very significant question for the future of our country?
0: Well, it's a very, very complicated issue. I think you've put it in very, very clear and lucid terms. Uh, On the one hand, I want to ensure that the United States is viewed as a place where people are welcome to come under certain conditions and requirements. So there's no such thing as just an open border, but we have to have a sense of welcome. Second, that each person who comes, whether they are meeting their criteria, not, are going to be treated with dignity. They're not going to be demonized. They're not going to be called rapists and criminals. They're not going to be called outside of their names, that they're human beings made in the image and likeness of a God that gives them a sanctity like anybody else. There has to be a comprehensive gathering of elites and leaders in a variety of different countries, not just Mexico and Central America. As you know, they come from other parts of the world because this is a global issue. It's got to be some global form with the United States being very clear that we're not in any way going to be uh, uh, antagonistic and hostile, but we do in fact have certain kind of conditions and certain kind of criteria. I would also want to be critical of any of those business elites who are bringing folk in for cheap labor in order to keep the wages down because we do have to be committed to living wages for working people across the board in the United States. And that includes folk who have been here for a long time, because there are, in fact, some tensions of what you would call even trade-offs about bringing in precious folk who are then deployed as cheap labor in order to keep wages down to make trade unions weaker and what have you. So we have to be honest. I don't think anybody, has a definitive thing. I mean, Brother Obama was viewed as the deporter-in-chief because he actually Mm -hmm. deported more than a Republican president. I don't think anybody has a definitive answer here, but we got to be jazz-like. We got to sit down and learn and listen, let folk know. There's always going to be certain conditions, but at the same time, we're fundamentally committed to treating folk with dignity, what you'd call sanctuary, not just with the churches, but also with me,
1: on, on on with 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 public policy. All right, Cornel, I'm going to let you go. I, I appreciate it. Maybe we can get you back again a little bit later on. Anytime talk as you call, folks. I come running.
0: You know that, brother. You
1: know that. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate hearing that. Uh, I want people to know that uh, they can like, comment, uh, share about The Glenn Show. They can subscribe to The Glenn Show. There's nothing wrong with that. If you like the content, please give us your support. But my guest has been the great... Cornel West, uh, candidate for the Green Party nomination for president of the United States. Thank you so much, Cornel.
0: Salute you, my brother. God bless you, all right. Sister Luani, all of your family. Tell Brother McCorder that he still loves Sondheim, just like me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sure to tell him that. All right, though,
1: brother. All right. Take love care, you, now. though,
0: man. Take good care.
1: Yeah, bye-bye.